Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Lift up your hearts. We lift up the Lord. Almighty God, King of the universe, you reign sovereign over all. You are not merely the greatest, the strongest, the wisest, the most loving, the most gracious, but you are all of those things completely beyond our imaginations. You are infant in every way, and we cannot even begin to comprehend that, except that we know that we are merely finite. You spoke and the worlds came into existence. You uphold all things by the word of your power. You speak and the earth quakes. You speak and nations rise and fall. You give every living creature the breath of life and you take it back whenever you please. You are everywhere and you know all things and you do not learn about anything since all things are immediately and exhaustively known by you before they even come to exist. So let all the ends of the earth praise you. Let all the nations confess that you are God and there is no other. Let all the parliaments and presidents and prime ministers and governors, Supreme Court justices and military commanders, all the pastors and elders, the fathers and mothers and teachers, let them all give glory to you. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end, and amen. Amen. Children, as we gather for worship this week, I want to speak specifically to you. Are you three? Are you six? Are you 12? Are you 16? I want to speak to all of you. First, I want to remind you children that you're most welcome here. Jesus said, let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of God. Worship is not just for adults. It's for children too. Second, I want to encourage you to participate with us. Sing all the songs you know. Try to follow along in the bulletin if you can read. Say amen with us at the end of the prayers and the hymns. The Bible teaches that God is determined to silence our enemies in the praises of children. Do not think you're not important. You are not only welcome, but we need your voices to join with ours in this fight. And this is why so many of you are participating in music camp this week. Third, remember that throughout the Bible you're called upon to obey your parents, to honor your father and your mother, so that it may go well with you in the land. Do you want it to go well with you at school, when you're riding your bike, when you're playing with your friends, and when you grow up? God says obey your parents, honor them. And how do you do that? 
Obeying them means doing what they've instructed you to do right away, all the way, and cheerfully. If you wait and do one more thing before obeying them, you're not obeying them. If you start to do what they've asked you to do but don't finish it, you're not obeying. And if you fuss and whine or roll your eyes or mutter things under your breath or into your heart while doing what they've asked you to do, you're not obeying and you're certainly not honoring them. God has instructed your parents to teach you to obey them. So when they teach you and discipline you to obey them, they're simply obeying God. So do not make this more difficult for them than it already is. And when you've sinned and disobeyed or dishonored them, take their discipline cheerfully. Remember that what they are doing is making sure things will go well for you. And finally, if you know that you haven't been obeying or honoring your parents well, take the moment of silence after our prayer of confession and tell God what you've done and ask him to forgive you and make you clean and give you strength to obey. And then at the very first opportunity, tell your parents too and ask their forgiveness as well. And as we all prepare to confess our sins together, let's turn to Be Not Far Off on page 31. Amen. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Scripture says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we confess that so much of our sin comes from our tiny view of you. We do not really believe that you are the greatest, the most powerful, the wisest, the one in whom all goodness and glory and pleasure resides forever. And so we are so easily distracted by things that cause us to be afraid or become angry sinfully. We are easily distracted by cheap, cheap offers of pleasure and goodness that then tempt us to steal and lie and lust. We so easily believe that we know better than you. And so we confess that we have often set up graven images of you in our hearts and minds, false pictures of what you are really like instead of the truth that is revealed in your word and in Jesus. So we confess the sin of idolatry, calling our small and pitiful pictures of you almighty God. We confess that because we so often pray to this God of our imaginations, our prayers are so foolish and weak and ineffective. Thank you for so often hearing us and answering us anyway. But we plead with you to forgive us for this insolence. We know how our hearts can be so cluttered with shrines and high places. And so we ask you to cleanse our hearts completely now. Turn over the tables of pride and ingratitude that we have set up, that have set up, set up shop in our hearts and drive out all our petty grievances and complaints. Give us the grace to simply trust and obey. We know that if we in the church give any place to sin in our lives, this prayer will be ineffectual, and so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. Father, we ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. 
Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Not only do we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins, but all this grace was planned and it's all his good pleasure. God doesn't forgive our sins reluctantly or begrudgingly. It's one of his favorite parts. He loves to forgive those who humbly and honestly confess and forsake their sins. And so I declare to you with great joy that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Psalm 106. These are the words of God. Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness on, into their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word, but murmured in their tents, and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor, and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. Because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake in it unadvisedly with his lips, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went to whoring with their own inventions. 
Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance, and he gave them into the hand of the heathen, and they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought in, into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use this word, take, uh, apply this word to our hearts and lives by the instrument of your spirit who is present here among us. Father, we make this request in the name of Jesus and amen. amen. So we're continuing through uh, uh, 10 Psalms as a, at a time, and we come to Psalm 106, and Psalm 106, I've, I've entitled this message, uh, something that might be self-evident, just reading through the Psalm, and that is the salvation of ingrates. This is all about the salvation of ingrates, the salvation of people who don't really appear to want to be saved that much, right? People who, who keep kicking against God's methods of saving them. Now, God is always to be praised for his marvelous works. He is always to be praised for his wonderful works. But we also need to remember to make sure to catalog our praises. God works wonderfully in creation, and we've considered that in some of the previous psalms. God works wonderfully in creation, and he works wonderfully also in the salvation of his people. He also works wonderfully, as we shall see here, in the salvation of ingrates. If you're going to talk about salvation of a fallen, sinful people in a world like ours, you're going to be talking about the salvation of people who are, who are dragged at least part of the way, kicking and screaming and yelling about it. So one level of praise is to extol God for his creative work in the heavens and earth. Another level of praise has to do with his work throughout the course of history. And because of the glaring fact of sin that is woven throughout that history, and as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the divide between good and evil runs straight through every human heart. It's not just sin that is woven throughout history. Sin is woven into our lives and into our families, into our marriages. Sin gets into everything. Because of that, the fact that God is redeeming us from our sin means something. This is largely a work of redemption, and as we shall see here, it frequently involves the actual salvation, the true salvation, the real salvation of stupid ingrates, spiritually stupid ingrates. Now, in using the word stupid, I, I'm, I'm uh, referring to the biblical category of folly. Folly is not in, in scripture, folly is not an intellectual issue. It's not an IQ issue. Uh, in scripture, folly is a moral thing. Folly, uh, folly, stupidity, uh, spiritual stupidity has to do with our unwillingness to let God be God. So let's consider what this psalm says. We're going to itemize first, and then I want to come to a point of application. 
The invitation is given. The invitation is given. Come praise the Lord for his everlasting goodness and mercy. That's the first verse. Come praise the Lord. Who is actually up to this task? <coughs> Who's actually up to the task of praising him? Verse 2. Blessed are those who keep their covenantal wits about them. Verse 3, you, you remember the covenant, remember what God has promised. Remember me, the psalmist prays, with the favor that you show to your people. Verse 4, and why does God show favor to his people? That I might see the good of the chosen, rejoice in the gladness of his nation, and glory with his inheritance. God saves his people for the sake of his name. We don't deserve to be saved. The devil deserves to be humiliated. The devil de deserves to be humiliated by us being taken from him, but we don't deserve this salvation. Then the psalmist begins, the, be, begins tallying up, begins reckoning, uh, uh, reckoning all the sins that Israel committed in the course of God's gracious dealings with them. Uh, the, previous, uh, the previous psalm uh, simply talked about how good God was. This psalm is emphasizing how bad Israel was. This psalm talks about all the ways that Israel fought what God was trying to do for them. So verse 6, uh, he, he begins the cataloging of all the sins. Israel did not understand the judgments that fell on Egypt. They did not see the multitude of God's mercies, and they began to kick at his goodness even as early as the Red Sea, verse 7. Now, remember, what's the context here? What, it, it's as though... Um, it's as though you're, you're at a heavyweight uh, boxing match and, you know, Moses and Pharaoh, and in every round, every round, uh, Moses knocks Pharaoh down. Every round, bam. And then the ref has to count it out, and Pharaoh staggers to his feet time after time. Every, every round, that happens every round. And then in the 10th round, Pharaoh comes out of his corner yelling and grimacing, and all the people of Israel go, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's got us now. What, what has just happened to Egypt? Egypt has been obliterated. Egypt has been obliterated. One plague after another. Then uh, Moses takes them out to the banks of the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh chases with his army. And then the people look at Moses saying, what are you doing here? What, what, are, we do, what are you doing with us here? Are you, do you want us all to die? It makes no sense. They began to kick at God's deliverance on the banks of the Red Sea right before he divided the sea. And then after they got through the Red Sea, just to anchor this point, when was, the, when was their next uh, grumbling match? When, when, when was their next uh, big fuss? It was three days after the Red Sea crossing. Three days after you'd seen the ocean part over a million people marched through, and the enemy army drowned, and that was right after uh, Egypt was wrecked and ruined, and then someone says, oh no, we didn't bring water. <laughs> Good grief. So, and, we, and remember that this is a folly is a spiritual thing, because all of us in, those, in their shoes, all of us in their sandals would likely have done no better. 
So they began to grumble as early as the Red Sea, but God saved them anyway, and he saved them anyway for his name's sake. Verse 8, our salvation is for the sake of God's name. Our salvation is for the sake of God's name. That's how Moses argues with the Lord. That's how Moses argues with the Lord when the Lord wants to uh, take Israel out. Uh, Moses says, Lord, what, what are people going to say about you if that happens? He saves them for his name's sake. He rebuked the Red Sea and led them through it, verse 9. He saved them from the Egyptians who hated them, verse 10. And the waters covered over Pharaoh's armies, verse 11. They sang God's praise on the shores of the Red Sea, verse 12, but soon enough forgot what had just happened. So they went straight for, they dropped the G, right? They went straight from singing to sinning. They, they just almost immediately forgot what happened. They didn't want God's counsel. They didn't want God's counsel, it says. They wanted redemption from consequences, but preventative salvation, not so much. They didn't want his counsel. They didn't want him to say, now, if you want to head this off the next time, if you want deliverance, if you want... If, if you want a fence at the top of the cliff, instead of me always parking the ambulance at the bottom, as the, as the old poem has it, you can park an ambulance at the bottom, and God's grace and mercy is always there. The ambulance is always there. But let's, let's build a fence at the top of the cliff, shall we? Uh, Israel didn't want that fence. That, that was, you know, fences at the tops of cliffs is just, frankly, legalistic. His preventative salvation, they didn't want so much. They had hot desires, and they tempted God, verse 14. He granted their physical re request, but he sent leanness to their souls. This particularly is one verse that a lot of people who have intense ambitions and desires ought to memorize. God granted their request and sent leanness to their souls. They got what they wanted physically, but they didn't get what they wanted. This should remind us of the comment from the pagan satirist, Juvenal, enormous prayers which heaven in anger grants. Enormous prayers which heaven in anger grants. How many times have you thanked God for all of those unanswered prayers? You ought to thank God more for unanswered prayer. All of the, <laughs> suppose they all arrived one morning. All the things you've asked for. And, and in retrospect, you say, that would have been disastrous. That would have been disastrous. That would have been disastrous. That would have been doubly disastrous. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the times you refused to listen to me. Envy of Moses and of Aaron was also a problem, verse 16, and which God dealt with by having both earth and fire destroy Dathan and Abiram. That's verses 17 and 18. Then Israel made a calf and worshiped the molten image. They're, they're, they're just going from one thing to another. Verse 19, they exchanged their glory <coughs> for a slow, grass-eating quadruped. Verse 20, and this, is, uh, this should make you think of the language of Romans 1, uh, where Paul says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for beasts, for the image of beasts. So they exchanged their glory for, a, for an ox. Verse 20, they forgot God who had done great things for them in Egypt and terrible things by the Red Sea. Verses, verses 21 and 22. God would have destroyed them had it not been for the intercession of Moses. Verse 23. They despised the pleasant land to which they were going and they did not believe a true account of it. 
verse 24. So they started thinking that when they started grumbling, they started remembering all the wonderful things about Egypt. You know, there were leeks and onions and watermelons and there's all this good food and Pharaoh offered full employment. <laughs> the, the unemployment rate was almost zero. There's always another pyramid to build. So they, uh, they grumbled, they, they just grumbled. They didn't, they didn't believe a true account of the pleasant land that was ahead of them, but they remembered how pleasant it was suppressing all the, the groaning and the prayers that they had offered up while they were slaves in Egypt. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the voice of God. Verse 25, they grumbled in their tents and didn't listen to God's voice. And so God lifted up his hand against them, verse, verses 26 and 27. They sinned at Baal Peor and ate unclean sacrifices, verse 28. They were enticed, in, enticed into massive uh, sexual immorality. They, they, were provoked, they provoked God to anger, and God answered them with a plague, verse 29. Phineas intervened, and Israel was spared. And that was imputed to Phineas as righteousness. That, that, that act of obedience on the part of Phineas, his zeal for... Uh, his zeal for God's righteousness, his zeal for God's holiness was honored. And if you look carefully in Judges 20, 28, Phineas is still there many, many years uh, later. So Phineas is apparently very long lived. God's blessing uh, rested on, upon him, not just spiritually, but uh, for, a long, uh, for a long life as well. They angered God at the waters of strife such that Moses overreacted, verses 32 and 33. Remember that millions of Israelites died in the wilderness and that Moses was one of them. Remember, if we're talking about all the Israelites who didn't make it into Canaan, Moses was one of them. Moses was kept out of, uh, of the promised land because of his sin, because of his sin at the end of his life. Now, you might say, well, I think God ought to, ought to have given him a medal for not losing his temper three years in, you know. So it was like almost at the, almost at the conclusion of the 40 years, Moses, um, uh, Moses sins. He's given a glimpse of the land uh, from uh, Pisgah, but he's not allowed to go in at all. So we, we, we tend to evaluate by our... Um, measuring rod, but God is infinitely holy, and Moses did not honor God, and even though he had had many years of faithfulness up to that point, God said, no, you can't go into the land. So when they invaded the land, when Israel invaded the land under Joshua, they did not complete the work of destruction that was assigned to them, verse 34, but they mixed with the heathen, and they learned their ways, verse 35. They served the Canaanite gods, which ensnared them, and they even sacrificed their children to devils, verse, verses 36 and 37. They shed innocent blood, and so they polluted the land, verse 38. They were inventive in evil and went whoring after their own devices, 39. They made God sick of his own inheritance, verse 40, and so he turned them over to those who hated them, Verse 41, why are we ruled by people who despise us? Why, why are we ruled by people who hate us? Because we're not listening to God. 
right? So ultimately, at the end of the, one of the takeaway applications of this psalm is that people get the government they deserve. People get the government they deserve. So their enemies oppressed them hard, verse 42, and God delivered them many times, but they kept, they kept provoking him, verse 43. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction, which they richly deserved, and he heard their cry, nevertheless, verse 44. He heard their cry, nevertheless. He remembered his covenant with them, and he turned his mind, he repented, he changed his mind in terms of not, not that God in his uh, decrees ever changes his mind, but he, he turned the course that he was on in accordance with the infinite mercies of an infinite God, verse 45. He even made their oppressors pity them, verse 46. Save us, Lord, gather us up, bring us all back, verse 47. Bless the name of the Lord and let all the people say amen and amen, verse 48. Now, I want to say a brief word about uh, applying this passage. I want to say a word about all corporate applications. And this is a, a caution I think we need to hear. Israel was a called out and chosen nation. Out of all the nations of earth, God picked one nation from whom the Messiah was to come. God gave one nation the responsibility for preserving the scriptures. He gave one nation this responsibility, and that one nation was Israel. One of the temptations that Christian nations have had in the past has been the temptation to think of themselves as occupying the same unique role, and that is necessarily false. In other words, uh, in their heyday, uh, it's, nothing is easier for a nation that is at the top of its game to say, we're number one, we're number one. And there's even a phrase for that here in conservative circles. People talk about American exceptionalism. We're number one. We're, we're, Americans are exceptional. Well, no, every nation in the history of the world at the top of its game has believed itself to be except. There's Babylonian exceptionalism, there was Persian exceptionalism, there was Roman exceptionalism, there was the British Empire exceptionalism. Uh, Holland was one, one time the world's superpower, uh, and it was a very Dutch reformed uh, nation, and they, they, they began to think of themselves in unique uh, Old Testament terms, like we're the chosen nation. There was a period when England occupied that space, and they thought of themselves as being uniquely blessed by God, this, the way Israel was. And Americans have not been slow to think that way about themselves either. And that's during the religious phase. Later on, when it starts to go to seed, they start to take credit for everything themselves. But Christian nations have frequently fallen into the trap of thinking that they are a un uniquely favored nation. That's simply not the case. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road, which is the error of thinking that God no longer deals with nations at all. But he does. The Great Commission requires us to disciple all the nations. God says in the Great Commission, all, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go disciple the nations. The verb is disciple, and the direct object of the verb is ethnoi, nations. Go disciple the nations. He wants all of them to have a relationship with God through Christ. The Great Commission requires us to disciple all the nations 
Christians. And Jesus says to baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So if there's a nation on this earth, we are commanded as the church to disciple them, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey. Obey what? Obey the word of God just like Israel was in the Old Testament. So God chose Israel in the Old Testament so that they would walk with him, so they would listen to his word, so they would obey his commandments and be blessed with all the Deuteronomic blessings. And they would avoid all the Deuteronomic curses, right? The blessings on the one hand for obedience, curses on the other for disobedience. So it's not the case, not the case any longer that just one nation possesses the Deuteronomic promises. But it is also not the case that no nation possesses them. Rather, in and through Christ, any nation may possess them. Any nation may possess them. And any nation can stumble and fall in just the way, in just the ways described in this psalm. So just a quick uh, just a quick note on this. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. And Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, the promise was given in Exodus 20 to Israel. Israel was at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, and God gives Israel a commandment with a promise. And the, fir the, the first commandment with a promise is honor your father and mother that your life may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, referring to the land of Canaan. The apostle Paul says to a bunch of Gentile kids in Ephesus, he says, children, you Ephesian Gentile children, you obey your parents. Obey your parents. Why? This is the first commandment with a promise. Hands go up. Isn't that a promise to Israel? Isn't that a promise to Israel? And Paul says, no, God is picking it up and expanding it to the whole earth. It's it's, this is a promise that is ex extended everywhere. You Gentile Ephesian kids, this is the first commandment with a promise. You are the new Israel. So any nation, any nation can be discipled. Any nation can obey. Any nation can disobey. This is the... Uh, this is the caveat, this is the thing, we're, so when we're talking, when we're calling America to repentance, there's no chosen nation foolishness involved in it. We're calling America to repentance in the same way that a faithful Englishman would call England to repentance, the same way a faithful Chinese would call China to repentance. We are calling our nation to repentance because Jesus Christ offers the status of Israel to every nation under heaven. So, and, and God deals with us in much the same way. So there are, play, there are ways that we may apply this, but not as though we were the unique ones. So three, three things I'd like to apply. This is a psalm of lament for America. As a nation, we have the blood of millions on our hands. As a nation, our representatives, our Supreme Court justices, our Congress, our executive, our presidents all have blood on their hands and they not only do they represent us, but they represent us well. They don't represent us in a good way, but they represent us accurately. They represent where the heart of America has been. As a nation, we have the blood of millions on our hands, tens of millions. Christians know that we bear the image of God from conception on and that this image must be honored for what it is from that moment on. 
But we have, just to take a, to take a calculus that even a non-believer might be able to see, we have, by the tens of millions, sacrificed American children to devils. Verse 36, verses 36 and 37. In this regard, we are no better than the ancient Molech worshipers. How can these children have blood and not have us be guilty of bloodshed? They can't have blood and have us somehow be immune from bloodshed. This is, now, there's something that's important for us to, uh, to note here. Our, we have lived on these shores for something like 400 years. We've lived on these shores for about 400 years. That is, in the Bible, one page. Genesis to Exodus. Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. We've only been a nation for half of that 400 years. It wasn't that long ago. One page, you turn the last page of Genesis over to the first page of Exodus, and that's the entire history of our inhabiting of the North American continent. And half of that time, we've been organized in a particular, our particular political arrangement. Israel went down some very dark roads, and they did it repeatedly. They did it over and over and over again. They did it over and over and over again. And God delivered them over and over and over again because he is zealous for his name's sake. Never, regardless of how much we deserve to eat our own cooking, regardless of how much we need to wallow in our judgments, regardless of what, everything we deserve, what does God do? God is in the business of saving. Second, as a nation, we have seen God grant our materialistic wishes along with leanness of soul. He granted their request and sent leanness into their soul. Verse 15, there has never been a people so awash in material prosperity as we currently are. There has never been a people, and there are millions of us, 300 million plus, there are millions of us, and we live at a level that nobody in the history of the world has ever lived at. We have it, we have it mind-bogglingly good. And there's never been a people as medicated for their unhappiness as we are. We, uh, we, we have luxury after luxury after luxury, and one of those luxuries is therapists, counselors, medications, bottles of pills. Oh, things are so terrible. Things are so bad. I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know. What my, I need to dig down deeper into my soul and find out what I'm made of. No, you don't. You need to serve God. You need to repent of your sins and serve God. And this is, we are, a, we are a textbook case of a people that have been blessed in mind-boggling ways, and we don't recognize it. We stare at it stupidly. We don't see how good we've got it. And we don't see how kind God has been to us in these material blessings. And then we, we should recognize that these material blessings are obviously not enough. We need to love God. So as a nation, we, as a nation, we are guilty of blood guilt. As a nation, we are miserable despite our prosperity. Despite our prosperity, we are miserable. And then third, as a nation, we have deliberately forgotten our, <coughs> our Christian founding. We've actively fought that knowledge, 
and we have mocked those who try to keep such knowledge alive. We have suppressed the doctor, any doctrines that might indicate the many times that God has delivered us in the past. Verse 43. We have said, no, no, it, now, it, when, when Jeroboam sets up the golden calves at Dan and at Bethel, during one of the, after Israel and Judah split, Jeroboam sets up the golden calves and he says, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's a history lesson. That's a history lesson. And it makes a difference whether Jeroboam or Moses is writing the curriculum. And we, we are told repeatedly, oh, America was found, founded by secularists. America was founded by deists. America was found, founded by people who, who didn't want to have the Christian religion involved in any of our dealings. And it's just simply a, a solid, resounding, 24-carat lie, right? It's just false. They're just people making it up. In 1802, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists. He wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists. And in this private correspondence, Thomas Jefferson said there was a wall of separation between the church and the state. That was private correspondence that Jefferson uh, wrote in a letter to the Danbury Baptists in Connecticut. In the 1940s, in the 1940s, a Supreme Court decision lifted that phrase, wall of separation, and superimposed it, making it retroactively true, making it a, a claim about all of uh, American history. When the Constitution was adopted, when it was ratified in 1789, there were 13 states. Nine of the 13 states, nine of the 13 states had established Christian churches tax-supported Christian churches. They were part of Christendom. Now, whether establishment of a Christian church is a good idea or not, it's certainly not an unconstitutional idea. It's certainly not an unconstitutional idea. Uh, out of the, the men at the Constitutional Convention, 55, 55 men were there. 50 of them were Orthodox Trinitarian Christians. You've been told over and over again that the founders were deists. There's, you could make an argument that Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and he had to hide it in order to get elected to things. Right? He had to hide it because America at its founding was Christian. Christian with a capital C. The, the Constitution was ratified in 1789, year of our Lord. Year of our Lord. This, and we just say, oh, really, deists? I didn't know. You know, I didn't know. You could probably, Franklin, Thomas Paine, not exactly a founder, and Thomas Jefferson, you could say they, they're roughly in that camp. Overwhelmingly, the founders were Christians. Overwhelmingly, they were with Moses and not with Jeroboam. And because we have allowed the secularists to ed educate our children instead of bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which we promised to do at baptisms, instead of bringing them up, bringing them up with a Christian education, we, we just go, we just drift the way we do. So what do we do? The time that we've spent on these shores has been about 400 years. About half of that time we've been constituted as a separate nation. Our total history is the same amount of time that Israel spent in Egyptian slavery. And he led them out of that slavery only to watch them sinning against him on the shores of the Red Sea, which was the symbol of their deliverance, and they kept it up over and over and over again. Verse 44, God has forgiven people in the past who have been far more wayward than we have been. 
God has repeatedly forgiven people who have been far more wayward than we have had an opportunity. I'm not saying that we are intrinsically better. I don't think we're intrinsically better at all. I'm just saying we're very young. We're not intrinsically better, but rather because we are not old enough to have sinned that much yet. As nations go, we don't even have a driver's license, right? We're very, very young. And yet, it looks pretty dark to us. It looks pretty overwhelming to us. And what does God do? Over and over again, he delivers his people. Over and over again, he forgives his people. But you can't have, you can't look up to heaven and ask for a generic forgiveness, praying to a generic God. We need to cry out to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to ask for him to forgive our sin. And we need to ask him to forgive our sin on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, even if we had been old enough to sin a great deal, God's covenantal mercies are multitudinous. There is a crowd of them. There is a multitude of God's mercies. There's a crowd of them. They are all purchased by the death of Christ on the cross. Freedom from the bloodlust of abortion. Freedom from sexual derangement. Freedom from feminism. Freedom from being doped up to the eyeballs. Freedom from legal drugs and freedom from the illegal ones. God offers freedom. God offers forgiveness for, pe for a bewildered, lost, and sinful people, far worse than we have been. And, we're, and if we don't receive that forgiveness, we're going to be in that position. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So what, what, does, what is forgiveness based on? Forgiveness is based on this, as it says in Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Our salvation, your salvation, is according to the riches of his grace. How abundant is he in mercy? Not how abundant are you in merit? Not how abundant are you in sincere repentance. Not how abundant are you in good works. Not how, uh, how educated you are in America's Christian history. None of those things. Nothing to do with you. It's for his name's sake and accordance with the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace, this is said of an infinite God. An infinite God who's ready to receive you and me as we turn to him in repentance. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. I pray that you'd give us clarity of mind as we think about these things. As we celebrate this meal together once more, I want to remind you that we do so because all the old stories are true. There was once a garden on a mountainside with a river flowing out of it. And in the midst of the garden, there were two magical trees. And it was a wonderful place, and something terrible happened when the man and woman who lived there listened to a talking dragon. There really was a great ship that carried two of every kind of living creature, and eight people survived a storm that covered the face of the earth. There really was an old man with a magic staff who challenged the pharaoh of Egypt, commanding locusts and hail, and in the end parted an enormous sea, and millions of people walked through on dry ground. There really was a donkey that talked one time, and stars came down in a great thunderstorm and fought for Israel. And once the sun stood still until another battle could be won, 
There really were giants and dragons on the earth in those days, and giant killers and dragon slayers. One shepherd boy killed a giant with his slingshot and then cut off his head. One man prayed and it stopped raining for three years and then he prayed again and it rained. Another man commanded bears and they mauled his enemies. Another man rode in the belly of a great fish and three young men defied an emperor one time and were cast into a fiery furnace and then came out completely unharmed. But the greatest story is about the child king who had a star over his house for a while after he was born and angels sung to shepherds about his birth. He grew up and he cast out demons and walked on water and healed the sick. And when his enemies killed him, he came back to life three days later. All these old stories are true, these and many others. We celebrate the great old story and all the old stories here at this table because here we celebrate the great storyteller. We know the old stories are true because something like magic has happened in our own lives. We used to have hearts of cold stone, but now they have become soft and warm. We used to hate God and his stories, and now we love them, and we love him most of all. And so we share bread and wine here with our king who lives forever, and we remember the old stories, and we believe they're all true, and they're all coming true. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. We've been reminded this morning of our God, our God who saves ingrates. That's the only kind of people he saves. They're the people who don't want to be saved, the people who rebel, the people who are insolent. They're the people he saves. And so as we look at our nation, we look at our family, we look at our city, we look at our state, wherever it is, where you see the darkness, the answer is simply the name of your Savior, Jesus, whose name means Savior. He saves. That's why we follow him. That's why we worship him. That's why he's our Lord, because we need to be saved. And so go out now with believing hearts, resting in your Savior. Is it dark? He is the light, right? He is the light. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and give you his peace. And amen. Amen.